Good to see you all this morning. Excited to be able to worship the Lord together and already have enjoyed uh, sensing the presence of the Lord here as we sing songs of praise to Him. Uh, I want to echo what I heard uh, said from the stage already once from Scott and also heard in the videos. Uh, just want to give a word of thanks to those of you who served Vacation Bible School this week. Um, I believe that is one of the most significant uh, outreaching events that we actually do on our campus anyway for that whole week, uh, day in and day out, we're presenting the gospel of truth to kids that don't necessarily always uh, find their way into the church, families who are not necessarily connected to the church either. And so I'm confident there was a lot of seeds sown this week, and whether we can immediately see the results of that or not, our confidence is that God always honors his word. When it goes out, he does what he desires to do through it. Amen? So we're going to praise the Lord in advance for the fruit that will come from that. I also want to mention before we jump into the message as well uh, that we have a team returning from Alaska this morning. And we're rejoicing that uh, in their experience there in Alaska, they did see people come to faith. And so what a blessing to know that we, we sent workers out to share the good news of the gospel. And even as we were praying for the Lord to give them boldness as they went and to prepare the hearts of those who would hear, God did that. He answered those prayers. There were people who surrendered uh, their will to the, Lord's pr uh, to the Lord, prayed to receive Christ, and we're rejoicing over that. Can't wait for the team to get back and to hear more about their experience. We also, just last night, actually I got it early this morning, but it was sent late last night, I uh, saw a, a wonderful picture of our teenagers uh, walking through the, the, the metro station in downtown L.A. And all I could see, I, evidently Josh was behind them. Josh uh, Duncan, our student minister, was behind them taking a picture. But they were on their way to go out into the city of L.A. and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And what a blessing, amen, to be a part of a church that does send its members, that does believe in uh, proclaiming the gospel to people. And I'm excited about what the Lord is doing through this body. Uh, well, this morning, we are going to continue uh, our series uh, called Summer in the Minors. And of course, you know, I'm not Josh Powell. I'm Stephen. And I'll be filling in this morning. Our pastor, Josh, and his family and others on our staff are actually making their way down uh, to New Orleans for the uh, Southern Baptist Convention that will be taking place this week. And so I'm going to pick up where we left off in summer on, uh, in the minors. As you know, we're moving through the 12 minor prophets. Uh, we call them minor prophets. We've already said this before, not because their message is any less significant than what we would read in the major prophets. It's just that their message is a little more brief. It's not quite as long. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the minorist prophet, if you will. And we're going to look at the book of Obadiah. And I can see the look on your faces and know that this may be the first sermon you've ever heard from the book of Obadiah. If that's true, say amen. 
I will confess this morning in full transparency, this will be the first sermon I have ever preached from the book of Obadiah. So I am thankful that this was my assignment this morning because it really forced me to do a deeper dive into that very short book. It's one chapter, 21 verses long, um, and one that is often overlooked. I mean, really hard to find, isn't it? Some of you are still thumbing through the pages. It just sets on one and a half pages, somewhere a little bit past the middle of the way through your through your Bible, often overlooked. Probably we've not remembered anything from that book before, but significant nonetheless because it is in our Bible, and the Lord has given it to us as a word from him. And this morning, we're going to spend some time uh, just learning from this book and exploring what God might want to reveal to us. And so what we're going to do to begin with, we're going to read the book in its entirety. And so if you have your Bible open or if you can just look here on the screen and follow along, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. The vision of Obadiah, beginning with verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, How you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. 
far the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. As you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is valuable to us this morning. We receive it as a word that you desire for us to meditate on, to know, to understand, and to obey. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts even now and minister to us as we wait in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, I've already said it. This is a very short book, and some of you are thinking, it didn't seem so short while you were reading all 21 verses. But short in comparison to the other books of the Bible. This is an entire writing of a prophecy. But I want you to notice a few things about it. It may be short. You may have never heard a sermon on it before. Uh, it may. It, it is dated. It's old. I mean, this was written. Uh, there's some discrepancy about when it was written. It, it mentions here um, two, two time. Well, it mentions here that it's set in the context of some major defeat that Israel has experienced. And so some nations have come and and they've attacked Israel and destroyed them. And and Edom has played some part in that destruction. We We don't know exactly which of the accounts it would be, but at least there are two options. It it could have been that this was written sometime around 850 BC. That means it'd be really old, right? 850 B.C. when the Philistines and some Arab nations attacked Israel and Edom played some part in that, in that battle. So it could be that that's the, the, the setting for it. Or it could be, and I believe it's this one, it could be that it was a little bit later, 250, 300 years later, uh, around 586 when the Babylonians attacked Israel and carried the people off into exile. And I, I believe that that's what, what is happening. I believe that's the time frame. It was sometime after 586, after Israel had been defeated, and before 
553, when Edom would also be attacked, be attacked by uh, the Babylonians and would experience defeat and then later would be wiped out as a nation. So I would place it somewhere around there. So what does that mean? It, it means we're looking at something that is 2,500 years old and it's short and it's unfamiliar. And the temptation that we might feel would be to dismiss it, to say, oh, tell us something that's a little more relevant than that. But I want you to take notice of a few things that are said, even right at the beginning and at the end of this prophecy, that should cause us to like slide up to the edge of our seat and lean in to listen to hear what the Lord might would say to us. You see how it opens. It says, the vision of Obadiah. To call it the vision of Obadiah is to put this writing, it's to say that this is a prophetic word from God. It is a prophetic revelation from God. Now, Obadiah is simply, he's the mailman. He's the guy who is receiving a word from the Lord to pass on to those that God desires to to speak to. And we see it. Look again. It says, the serve, it says the vision of Obadiah. And then look the very next line. Thus says the Lord God. And then on a little bit further, we have heard a report from the Lord. And if you look over to verse 18, one, one more time where it says, for the Lord has spoken. And so when I think about that, I just think about the repetition of that. This is a vision from God. It's a word from the Lord. The Lord has spoken. Thus says the Lord. Suddenly, this book comes, becomes super important to me and becomes super important to you. This book is a word from God. And it should be heard. It should be understood. It should be embraced as true, and it should be followed by those who hear it. Notice who the book is written by. It says Obadiah. Uh, the the uh, name there, Obadiah, literally means servant of Jehovah. And there are about 13 mentions of an Obadiah as we look in the Old Testament. And we're not certain is... Uh, this Obadiah, one of those 13, or is Obadiah just more of a description of the man that God will use to bring this message? But whatever we believe about that, we know the message comes from the Lord. Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 21, listen to these words. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so whether the man's name is Obadiah or whether it's an unnamed person who is described as a servant of the Lord, Obadiah is being carried along by the Spirit to deliver a message that is a word from the Lord. Notice who the word is concerning. It says... Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And so this is a word from the Lord concerning Edom. Who is Edom? 
And why would God send a message to Edom? When we read most of the prophecies, we realize that most of these prophecies are written uh, by God or they're sent messages from God to God's people. And, and here it's a little different. This is a message from God to another nation, to the nation of Edom. So who is Edom? Well, let's just kind of walk down memory lane for a few moments. You'll remember a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham was given a son, a promised son, whose name was Isaac. And Isaac, uh, at the ripe old age of 40, uh, found a wife by the name of Rebekah. And they wanted to have children. And Rebekah had been barren for some time. And, and Isaac prayed to the Lord to give them a child. And what happened? Rebecca became pregnant. She conceived, and during her pregnancy, there was some kind of a struggle going on, even inside of her womb, some, some kind of a struggle going on inside. Sounds like the Lord is calling. <laughs> That's right. Another point. The Lord has a word for us this morning. Those those sons inside of her womb, there was a struggle going on, and she would inquire of the Lord, what is this struggle that is going on inside of me? And in Genesis chapter 25, the Lord would respond, and here's what the Lord would say. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older will serve the younger. And so even before these boys are born, the Lord is speaking a prophetic word that there are two children and that there will be tension between them. And eventually, the older one will serve the younger, which would seem like a, a, a reversal of roles there. And we know what would happen. Uh, Esau would be born in due time first. And the scripture says he was, he was red and he was hairy and he was an outdoorsman. I always think of Alex Smith when I think about Esau. <laughs> Alex, I love you, brother. But Esau was born first. And the scripture even says that as Jacob comes out of the womb, what is he doing? He is, he is grabbing he is grasping at the heel of his older brother. Again, just another sign of that tension that would exist between these two brothers and the realization that this is not just a sibling rivalry that will last for that generation between those two men. This prophetic word that the Lord is speaking of is literally going to become two nations that will have great enmity between them. Of course, Jacob will be chosen by God. You'll remember the story, right? Esau comes home from hunting. He's starving. Uh, he thinks that he can't live another five minutes without something to eat. And what does he do? He sell, He literally, the scripture says, despised his birthright and sold it for the price of just one bowl of beans, one meal, for one meal in that moment of hunger. I can't wait another moment for one meal. I will give up all the, the benefits, the rights of being the firstborn, and also the responsibilities that are mine as the firstborn. I will exchange it for that one meal. 
course, we know later what would happen as well. Jacob and his mom, Rebekah, would plot together to deceive Isaac in his old age. Remember? Deceiving him into believing that Jacob was Esau so that Isaac would do what? So that he would give his blessing to the secondborn and not the firstborn. And so that's the story of Jacob and Esau. And we know that, that as we continue to read, Jacob actually becomes Israel, the nation of Israel. And Esau, on the other hand, we find out later, Genesis chapter 36, I believe it is, that, that Esau will become the father of the Edomites or the nation of Edom. And so this prophecy is a, a word from the Lord concerning Edom, and it is a specific word from the Lord concerning Edom. It, it really has two messages inside. There's one, the message of judgment. You, you can't miss it. I mean, just thinking back through the verses that we just read together, you can't miss that this book is largely a book pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. But it is also a message that speaks of hope, speaks of a promise. It speaks of deliverance for the nation that is Israel. And so the question then that comes to mind is, why? Why this message of judgment against the nation of Israel? And I want you to notice, look at verse 3 with me, if you will. In verse 3, we will find what Edom's sin was, what it was that would, would move God to pronounce this type of judgment. As we look at verse 3, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride, the pride of Edom's heart, the pride of Esau's heart is the, the root cause of the enmity that exists between God and the nation of Israel. It's pride in his heart. And really... I think it's fair for us to say that pride tends to be the root cause of all of us as we struggle with different areas of sin in our life. Pride is the root cause of our sin. I mean, just think for a moment about Lucifer. Think about this, this angelic being that was created to give praise to Almighty God, and who, instead of desiring to give praise to God, longed to be worshipped himself, and how that led to his fall from heaven. Think about Adam and Eve, the clear message that God had given to Adam and Eve, the, the clear understanding they had of what God expected of them. You realize the, the sin, original sin, it, it's not that eating fruit is sinful, right? I mean, we, we can eat fruit. The sin of Adam and Eve was not, oh, oh, fruit is off limits. The sin of Adam and Eve was that there was a specific fruit, a specific tree that God had said, do not eat the fruit of. 
And the pride in Adam's heart, the pride in Edom's heart that would have them longing for more than what God had promised, longing for more than what God had provided, and believing that if they ate of that fruit, maybe they could be like God. I would say pride in their heart would move them to disobey God and to fall into the sin of rebellion. He says here, Obadiah does, that the pride of their heart has deceived them. And I think pride is always deceptive. And what pride does to us, it deceives us and it gives us a wrong view of God. And it gives us a wrong view of self. And it gives us a wrong view of others, of one another, of each other. Pride does that. It, it deceives us into not seeing each other rightly. And if pride is left unchecked in our life, it will result in some sin, the sin like of self-indulgence. I mean, think about it for a moment. Self-indulgence would be us rejecting God's authority, us refusing to yield to God's purpose and plan for our life and indulging in the things that, that make us happy or indulging in the things that we have decided to do ourselves. Pride left unchecked will lead us to a life of rejecting God's authority and self-indulgence. Pride, if it's left unchecked in our life, will lead to self-reliance. Self-reliance. Think about it for a moment. When, when we are overly prideful, when, when we think wrongly about ourselves, guess what we start to do? We ignore our own frailty. We, we, we disregard th that there are limitations on us, on our wisdom or on our strength or on our resources, and we become self-reliant. Pride leads us to that mistake, and we begin to depend on human strength rather than on God. The final thing I think that pride uh, lends itself to in our life, it, it leads us to self Centeredness. It, it, it moves us to become preoccupied with, with me, with my and mine. And it leads me to disregard the value of, of you and of others in the world. It causes me to, to only be caught up in who I am and what I need and what I want. And I'll fail to see you, to, to love you, to serve you, to cooperate even with you in the work that, is, that God has called us to do together. Pride is deceptive and it leads us to these sins. And it, just think about it for a moment, even as we reflect on what we've learned already about, about Esau. Can, can you see where Esau's pride led to self-indulgence? 
I mean, even as he returns from hunting and it's in that, in that moment, that split-second moment of I want something to eat and I want something to eat now with a total disregard for the order of things in their household, for the responsibility, the stewardship that, that is his as the oldest son. And his willingness to despise that, to, to neglect his responsibility and to, to forfeit his benefits, the, the benefits and the blessings and to, to, to be reluctant to take responsibility even in his family in exchange for something so, so temporal, something that would satisfy him in a moment. But just a few hours later, guess what? He's going to be so hungry again. That if he doesn't eat, he feel like he's going to die. And so we can see where our pride would lead us towards self-indulgence. So here's one of the things that, that uh, I, I would say is a, a warning sign for us that we are struggling in the area of, of pride regarding the view of God, having the wrong view of God. If you and I neglect time in the Word of God, in a sense, what we're doing, and if we neglect time to come and, and to hear the Word of God preached, or if we neglect to listen as if the message is for us, or if we neglect to apply the Word that has been preached to our own life, in a sense, this is revealing the pride that is in our heart, that we, we feel like we don't need God's authority in our life or we're not willing to yield to God's authority. We have put ourselves on the throne of our own life. And neglecting the Word of God would be one of those things. I mean, just examine your own life. How much time do you spend in the Word of God? If you spend little time in the Word of God, I would say that that you're struggling in the area of pride and feeling like you don't need the direction or you're not willing to receive the direction that God wants to lead you. Consider uh, Edom's pride when it comes to the area of self-reliance. We said that it will distort our view of self. And so think about how Edom's pride led to self-reliance. If we look at verse 3 again and just kind of look down through those verses at what he, as what's being said. It says, You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? You hear that bold? It's like this rhetorical question. Who will bring me down? It's like I, I see myself in this place of security. I see myself in this place of stability, and I could ask the question. I see myself up here, and I believe that no one can knock me down from here. And this would be the attitude of, of Edom's heart a self-reliant attitude, a wrong view of themselves. And, and I believe that, that what we see here is an, an overconfidence in, some of it is an overconfidence in where they're living. As a, as a nation, they're in this strategic place in the clefts of these rocks. And the only way to, to get up, they're about 5,000 feet above sea level. And, and the only way to get up to, to the city of Petra, the capital city there, would be to, to move through these winding little uh, 
trails that go up and canyons that go up into the top of the mountains there, very narrow, and so very easy for them to protect themselves. Uh, it was believed that even as many as, uh, as few as like 12 people could position themselves in those little channels that people would have to come through to climb and fend off an entire army. It was almost like they were in this impenetrable place, that, this fortress that, that, that no one could enter. And they knew that. And they, they felt confidence in that. They felt like we're so secure up here in the mountains and no one can take us down. They had that view of themselves, an overconfidence in their position there in the mountains. But they also seemed to have an overconfidence in their allies, the people that they were relating to and who, who they were in cahoots with, if you will. So look at verse 7. It says, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So they're overconfident in the fact that they have all of these nations that are allied with them. And, and their thought is, oh, there's strength in numbers. And, and so we're, we're untouchable. It's not just that we're up here in the mountains, but, but we also have all of our friends who will come to our rescue if we need them. And you see what happens here. He says that those that they were depending on had pillaged them, had driven them to their borders, had deceived them, and had prevailed against them. Their confidence proved to be a misplaced confidence. There's one other thing that we see in verses 8 and 9. There was an overconfidence in their own personal abilities. Notice what it says. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by the slaughter. You hear what they're relying on? They're relying on their wisdom. They're relying on their own understanding. They're relying on their own might and their own strength. But the Lord is saying that's a misplaced confidence. When you put too much confidence in yourself, in your position up there in the high place, I will bring you down. When you put all of your confidence in your friends, in your allies, I will destroy you. When you put your confidence there in the, the abilities that you have, your own wisdom, your own understanding, your own strength, I will destroy the wise man, the understanding, and all of you will be cut off by the slaughter. Can you see where the pride in Edom's heart had become the source of enmity between them and God? They had become self-indulgent. They had become self-reliant, depending on themselves, depending on their position, depending on their allies, depending on their strengths, and they were vulnerable, and they were falling and would fall to the judgment of the Lord. I want you to notice the third thing there. Edom's pride would lead to selfishness 
and ultimately violence against his brother. If we pick up in verse 10, we see the other major charge that is brought against the nation of Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you, deceived you. And then verse 10, it says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And this is uh, where we pick up with the, the battle that I believe had taken place. I believe this would have been during the Babylonian uh, battle when they would, uh, the Edomites would, would participate in this uh, attack against Israel. Initially, it was just the attitude of their heart. Initially it was, and you can see it in the verses there, it says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so initially they're just standing aloof, they're just observing as the Babylonians come and literally attack the city and destroy it. But even as they stood aloof watching, even as they stood initially not as active participants, but doing these things, gloating over his misfortune, rejoicing over their ruin, boasting in their distress, gloating over their disaster. These are all more, more passive uh, aggressions towards their brother, towards Israel, in that they were, the attitude of their heart was enjoying seeing the defeat that would come. But we see that quickly the, the, the transition from the attitudes of their heart and their aggression became more active when it says that they began to, to loot the city. And they stood at the crossroads. They themselves entered the city. And they stood at the crossroads to, to cut off the fugitives and to hand over the survivors, to keep those who were trying to flee from their lives, to literally catch their brothers who should have been their brothers and turn them over that they would be taken into exile. And so we see here uh, the sin of their violence against their brother was, was really also rooted in their pride. They had a wrong view of their brothers. They were so preoccupied with self that they didn't see the opportunity to serve their brother, to be a protector of their brother, to be the keeper of their brother. And instead, they participate and literally become the killer of their brother. One sure sign, I said earlier that a sign that pride is causing us to, to fall in sin would be that we, we lack commitment or we neglect the Word of God. And, and an, an issue for us is that if we become negligent of prayer, I think it indicates that we're walking in self-reliance. And, and here the issue is when we neglect Fellowship, when we neglect the, the body of Christ, when we don't commit ourselves to the partnership that God has called us into together to be a part of his kingdom advancing for the sake of his glory, it's a sure sign of pride when we begin to withdraw from the body as if we can do things alone. And when we fail to come to the aid of those around us, who may need us, it is a sign of our pride that we, we're preoccupied with self and we don't care about those around us. 
the next several verses, and I, we don't have time to read it, and I can see now that my time has not been managed well to get where I wanted to get in this passage. But the next several verses, as a matter of fact, 21 different statements are made that spell out the judgment that would come on the nation of Edom because of their pride, because of their self-indulgence, because of their self-reliance, because of their self-centeredness, because of their violence against their brother. Judgment is going to come, and, and you can read it. 21 individual statements. Why 21 different statements? I mean, there are only 21 verses. And so 21 statements that spell out the, the judgment that would come. And I believe it's repeated so many times to communicate the severity of the judgment that will come. And I believe that we did see Edom judged in this way. Again, by 312 B.C., they were literally wiped off the face of the map, no longer recognized as a nation. These things did come true. But in a sense, there's a, there's a futuristic uh, look at this as well. Uh, Obadiah is going to go on to mention the day of the Lord that is going to come. And it won't be a day that's just focused on the nation of Edom or the nation of Israel, though Edom uh, did experience judgment in this century, uh, the century that we're referring to in 312 BC. But there is a futuristic, those who like Edom who because of their pride reject the authority of God, those who uh, are unwilling to submit and surrender to the authority of God, those who are self-reliant and unwilling to admit their need for a Savior, confess their sin, repent, and be saved, and those who are unwilling to, to be a part of the body that God has birthed us into when we are born again, the pride that would keep us from those things is the pride that would associate us with the nation of Israel. And the final judgment that I believe is referenced there in verse 15 when he says the day of the Lord is near, not near in a sense that it means it's immediate, but near in a sense that it is imminent, that it is likely to happen at any moment. And when the day of the Lord comes, the severity of judgment that we see in these 21 statements is speaking of a physical judgment. Can you imagine how many, can you imagine how severe the judgment will be on those who have to face the wrath of God because of their pride? They were unwilling to receive the gift of salvation that God offers by His grace. The physical judgment that we read about is no comparison with the eternal torment of the wrath of God, of experiencing a literal hell for all of eternity. And I believe that's why we read these 21 statements. It's to make us say, man, that was harsh. Oh, that was harsh. Oh, that was awful. That was bad. Listen, there is no comparison with what will be the lot for those who have rejected because of pride. They have rejected their need for Christ, for the death and resurrection of Christ to offer them the salvation that they need from sin. 
as we close this morning, I want to ask you to see yourself the way Scripture describes us. There are, even in this passage, two nations, Edom and Israel, there are two types of people. In this room today, there are only two types of people. The spiritual Edoms and the spiritual Israels. The spiritual Edoms are those who, because of their pride, they're going to chart their own course and reject the need that they have for a Savior. And the Scripture says the judgment of God will fall. The wrath of God will be what is ahead for them for all of eternity. The other person in the room is those who, like Israel, by the grace of God, because of the love and grace of God, they have received humbly the promises that God has made. They have embraced Christ as their Savior. In humility, they have confessed their sins, admitted their need for a Savior, put their faith in Jesus, and they have repented, and they have been saved. There's a spiritual Edom. There's a spiritual Israel. We're all born into Edom. We're all born into sin. We all need to be born again by humbly putting our faith and our trust in Jesus. This morning, as we close the service Uh, As our band comes to lead us to close the service, I want to encourage you to consider where you are in your relationship with the Lord. Do you see yourself as one who is self-reliant? Do you see yourself as one who is self-indulgent, one who is self-centered and thus outside the family of God? Or do you see yourself as one who has humbly come to Christ and received the offer of salvation.